Hello, I'm here today with Martin Wimpress, otherwise known as Wimpy. If you've been in the Linux um, and Ubuntu communities or, you know, either of those really, you've probably heard of Wimpy. He has a great YouTube channel, Wimpy's World, which I'd recommend you check out. I'm not going to do too much of an intro here because this is a pretty, uh, pretty wide-reaching conversation. Very interesting, especially if you're either Linux curious or are currently a desktop Linux user. I think there's a lot here for you, even if you're not, just to see kind of how, you know, that world is you might be interested as always the show is brought to you by the mad botter my software company if you need things automated rabot is in early release so yeah let's let's talk about that rabot is our automation platform otherwise if you need custom python or ruby development we have some python bandwidth right now fortunately we are currently booked out on the rubies because i don't know uh, balan from moria called and got kind of a balrog problem I realize that went nowhere. Anyway, here's Wimpy, and uh, talk to you soon. Bye. Martin Wimpress, otherwise known as Wimpy, how are you? I'm very well. How are you doing? I'm good. So I think people who listen to the show probably know of you quite a bit, right? They know your YouTube channel, Wimpy's World, and they know that you are the engineering manager of Ubuntu Desktop and basically everything else Canonical makes for the desktop. Yeah, they, some people may know me for my day job. I think fewer people know me for my uh, my endeavors on YouTube. But uh, yes, yeah. So, what does that entail? Being the engineering uh, engineering manager for Ubuntu Desktop. Well, the things that people will probably have in their mind's eye with regards to you know what the the Ubuntu Desktop is. So, you know, it's obviously managing the team of people that pull together all of those open source components that make a desktop operating system such as you know the gnome shell firefox browser libreoffice thunderbird you know and bringing that all together and trying to deliver the best quality experience that we can by combining that and you know drivers and the security experience from the security team but then the pieces of what i do that maybe people don't realize goes on at canonical is then working with the likes of intel and amd and dell lenovo and hewlett packard making sure that we have all of the device enablement and hardware enablement in place so as those organizations release their new desktop and laptop products we have a optimized version of ubuntu available to go out pre-installed on their devices um, so that's sort of a, a, a peek behind the curtains of, you know, bits that I do that, you know, you wouldn't imagine that I probably get involved in. And then an extension of that is those organizations that run Ubuntu desktop at scale within the enterprise, and it's delivering the features that they want in order to manage the desktop at scale and integrate it with the rest of their sort of, you know, technology ecosystem. So those are sort of the three big parts of, of what I do. Interesting. And I should apologize as engineering director, not manager, but I misspeak all the time. So people, <laughs> people must be used to it. So that's it. So you actually get involved with the OEMs, like when Dell would, does things like Sputnik, and I know they have other models now. They have the, what, they have the 13, the Precision, the Inspiron, right? There's like three? Yes. So we have uh, what we call the OEM delivery team in Taipei, 
and they have a lab there with about fit just over 50 engineers and they're responsible for doing the hardware enablement work and helping the OEMs with their certification processes you know to make sure that these new devices go out with um, energy star ratings and all all of the rest of it and then what the desktop team does is uh, we support them so there may be features that those OEMs want in the Ubuntu desktop that don't currently exist and we then work on those features upstream with the rest of the GNOME project in order to ensure that the OEMs have the features that they're looking for in order to offer sort of um, a more an experience which is more similar to what's available on the mainstream platforms. So, and maybe I'm grasping at straws here, would an example of this be, I, and I'm using Dell as a frame of reference, because, so full disclosure, the only two brands of Linux PC I've actually bought that came pre-installed have been Dell and uh, System76, right? Okay. So Dell used to have, and I believe they still do, a kind of configuration tool when you first boot up from a fresh install where kind of helps you with packages and things like that. Drivers, I think. Is that the kind of thing that team's working on, or is it something else? Yeah, so there's a couple of bits there. So yes, there is, for every SKU that's available pre-installed in Ubuntu, we have the potential to deliver what we call optimized an optimized experience so that basically means that all of the power tuning and any any new devices may maybe there's firmware that's specific to that device that needs to go out and the thing with power tuning is that's never a generic solution this is one of the reasons why it's difficult to deliver that all turned on in the distro that you download because that's intended to work on as many machines as possible but when we're targeting a specific device we can deliver just the right settings for that particular piece of hardware and more recently the work that we've been doing is around new sound chipsets there's some new um, sound chipsets in upcoming devices they're not released yet but we've been doing the work to enable that we did some work to enable new contemporary uh, biometric devices to do second factor authentication and things like that so that's sort of you know at a very low level what we're doing and then at a higher level it's things like uh, exposing settings in gnome settings that the oems want their customers to be able to you know fiddle with and there's some work actually happening upstream in gnome power endurance settings and targets and things like that which overlaps neatly and there's some other work that's going on which i can't talk about unfortunately because it's all under nda but it will all be released through uh through the gnome project in time but the work that's happening there is actually linked to uh some new devices that haven't been released by the oems yet and some brand new features that we've never seen in laptops before so that that's exciting can it make me a gin and tonic Sadly not. Sadly not. No. Well, the, but the dream is still alive. I'll tell you. <laughs> yeah, but right, these so- are these are features that are definitely in the uh, compatible with sort of the Linux using audience. Yeah, definitely. Uh, that I think will be popular with Linux users. So that, that's actually a great uh, segue here. Let's talk about it, Linux users in particular, because I know just from like looking at my audience, it's half Linux, half Mac, and there's a couple Windows guys hiding under a bridge somewhere. One of the objections that I get when I talk to people who are like me coming, they were developers, um, they were used to working on you know, a Macintosh or a Mac, since I need to date myself apparently, <laughs> is, oh, well, the Wi-Fi is going to be fiddly and the power management is going to suck and uh, I don't want to fiddle with drivers. But it sounds like, one, in general, the Linux distros have come a long way, right? 
but also yeah. the work the work you're doing specifically on Ubuntu at Canonical for like you know the pre-installed Dells and the other vendors are kind of trying to basically fix that problem. Is that fair? Yes, I mean it is, and it's not just us, right? That it is fair to say that there are a number of organisations that are investing quite significantly in desktop Linux and have done for for years. And I think one of the reasons we're in the place that we're in now is because people put in a lot of hours and a lot of effort over decades in order to get us to this point. You know, it didn't sort of magically just happen in the last couple of years, a bit like the whole proton and wine story. A lot of people will cite the last couple of years as being sort of, you know, a golden era for gaming on Linux. And in the last couple of years, proton has come around, but proton is built on a couple of decades work in the, in the wine community. You know, we wouldn't be where we are had it not been for 20 years of hard work but um what's driving most of the interest in new linux devices that we're seeing from the oems that we work with and their customers is ai ml workstations so we are almost never enabling mid-range or budget conscious devices demand is driven by high-end workstations that are either equipped with lots of gpu or are something that an ex apple owner would be happy to have as a replacement that lives up to the same sort of you know design goals and quality of device and all the rest of it so consequently they all tend to be quite high-end machines and we're seeing increasing demand i mean we're we've spoken about dell but um, Lenovo and HP are investing significantly in what they want to offer their customers with regards to Linux workstations, both desk-side workstations and mobile workstations. We've just started to see the beginning of that work. You will have seen some of the uh, releases from Lenovo, and you will have seen the first batch of devices from HP, and there are lots more in the pipeline um, at the moment, more more than we've ever done before. And the other thing that switched up is all of the we've we've been enabling devices on HP, Lenovo, and Dell for years, and people have only really been aware of like the XPS 13s and more recently the XPS 15s because those devices were available on the Dell website if you were there at the right place at the right time. Yes, and you danced on one foot. Indeed. (laughs) (laughs) All of that. Uh, But for HP and Lenovo, those were only available to business customers through your business rep. They were never on the website for consumers to buy. And that's the big change we're seeing is entire families of devices for HP and Lenovo being enabled with Ubuntu pre-installs and also being available on their website as the configuration option when you want to choose your operating system. So, yeah, the, you know, if there was a year to say it's the year of the Linux desktop, this would be a good one to pick. <laughs> right, it's always the year of the Linux desktop. Let's... This is true. It's more. It's more so this year, just like the year before. <laughs> That's true. And and twenty twenty one. So is is it fair to say that kind of the target market for these you know Linux pre installed out of the box machines? are developers and other kind of professional-grade technology people? Yeah, almost exclusively the audience is a developer audience. And AIML makes up a a big focus of that. But if not that, then yes, developers. Developers who would have been using macOS on a MacBook Pro, for example, 
who now want an experience on the desktop that's closer to the experience that they're deploying to in the cloud. You know, I love it when someone tells me that I'm their target audience. It really warms my little black heart. So, okay, I have to ask about package management Mm -hmm. because I will get lots of uh, feedback on that, let's say. I personally use Snap, but my distro of choice, Pop, does try to force you into Flatpak. And force is a strong word. I know you're not going to like that, but... You know, it, the default in the Papua shop is Flatpak. First of all, what is Snap? I guess for folks who don't know, because we do have a lot of people who are on Mac OS and don't know what the hell Snap is. So maybe we should just take it. Okay. Yeah. So in terms of the package, well, I'll tell you what, Snapcraft is a platform and an ecosystem. And if you go to Snapcraft.io, the first thing you will see is Snapcraft is the app store for Linux. So that's your elevator pitch. That's what we're we're setting out to achieve here is a means to for ISVs and developers to publish their applications authoritatively that can run on all of the major Linux distributions. So that so Snap is not just for Ubuntu. It's not just for Ubuntu, no. Uh, right from the very beginning, it was designed to run on not every distribution because there are certain assumptions that we have to make about the technology choices we've made in order to deliver snaps, one of which is System D. So if you're electing to use an, a, a distro that doesn't use System D, then, well, I'm sorry, it's not going to run there. But then again, those distros are pretty niche. But if you're looking at any of the, you know, RHEL, Fedora-derived distros, Debian, Ubuntu-derived distros, and then you've got Solus and um, Manjaro and Arch and what have you, it works fine in, you know, all of these places. So when you add up that, you know, you hit a large slice of the, the Linux audience. So that's the goal. And then Snaps themselves, they're sort of, they use container primitives in order to achieve this. So uh, as the publisher, you can place precisely what you want inside a snap. And um, you can think of them a bit like APKs on Android. You know, it's a collection of all the bits that your application needs to, to operate. And it sits on a tiny little shim of a runtime that provides that compatibility layer so that it can run on Fedora and Arch and Ubuntu and Debian. So... I mean, I can I can go into excruciating detail on this because it's something I've been working with and on for the last three years or so. Um, no, I mean, I know there's a lot here. So let me just like, let, let's take the App Store analogy because I think that's mm-hmm. going to be the easiest uh, place to start. My understanding, you can tell me if I'm wrong, is there is no such thing as a paid application on Snapcraft. There's no payment through the store itself, but there's nothing prohibiting publishers to put an application in the Snap Store that has paid up like an activation code. Yeah, or like exactly. That they then handle the payment processing for. And I think, you know, just a major difference: uh, it, the Snapcraft Store does not stop you from. It, there's no like app review process of like, well, we don't like this app, right? Well. Not exactly. So let me let me just wind yeah. back a bit. So on the payment side of things, what we're currently piloting is the ability for projects, because uh, obviously in the Linux community, there's lots of 
independent developers working on projects in their spare time and they will have either a patreon or a paypal or what have you so we're working on a pilot at the moment for developers working on independent projects to list where their where their supporters can go in order to back their project and do that through the store so that's something that we're working on but it's not the way that you can go in there and say buy a game through the store and we handle the payment and then give the developer their cut in terms of um hang on a minute what was the second part of your question so you don't review uh or snapcraft doesn't review the the applications for you know following any sort of guideline in terms of like a like the hig right on the, on the mac side where if apple doesn't like the way you did your drop down they can tell you no no we don't have any kind of user interface hig compliance testing whatsoever because all applications are welcome and when i say all applications i don't just mean desktop applications so the origins of snaps was um, a continuation of clicks that were developed for the phone because we ran out of road with uh, click packaging and we needed something better and snaps were that but then snaps were also designed to address the needs of what at the time was the emerging sort of iot markets so you can publish applications for iot devices you can publish ci cd tooling ides configuration management agents gnome desktop applications kde desktop applications electron applications flutter applications you know elementary os applications we don't mind who your audience is you can publish a snap for whatever your needs may be in terms of app review, every time an app is published into the store, there are automated tools in order to ensure it conforms to all of the necessary security policies and things of that nature. So we do some introspection then, and we will prevent snaps that don't adhere to all of those requirements from being published and being available to end users. Okay, so there's a security review, but there's right. not like a content review, so to speak. Yes, yes. And content re reviews we have had to do, but there's been so little requirement for that. We've handled those all manually, and there's only, I think I can count on one hand the number of times we've actually had to do that. Got it. So let me make sure, in simple terms, Snapcraft is actually a, a broader software deployment and distribution mechanism. Yeah as opposed to the app store where it's, you know, GUI packaged apps. I know, yeah. for example, .NET Core, you can actually get as a snap of package, right? Yes, and the Flutter SDK is a snap, for example. And then you can have these snaps, you know, interact with each other. So, for example, if I was a, a Node developer, I could install the snap of Node.js and the snap of Visual Studio Code, and those two things can interact. And then I can install the snap of CMake and then the snap of the Flutter SDK, and then install the Flutter extension inside of Visual Studio Code, and you've you know created a whole developer experience in just a few seconds. That's very impressive, because I think VS Code has got to be a pretty substantial application for uh, the developers coming over from Mac OS, right? It has, I mean, I, I use VS Code every day. I had it open right before we jumped on this call, so... Yeah, I mean, VS Code is my editor of choice. You know, I've obviously been around the houses for many years, and um, I love Visual Studio Code. It's absolutely brilliant and a fantastic leveler because when we go to developer conferences or we host developer events, 
all of the developers these days that we encounter are using Visual Studio Code, except for some diehards who are on, you know, Vim or Emacs, and our friends at JetBrains who are obviously using their suite of products. I, I feel like they're over there going, hey, guys, come on now. Let's, let's take it easy. <laughs> yes, I also am a JetBrains customer. Mm-hmm. So, so let's say your dependencies are a bit more exotic. I don't know who would do this, but maybe someone would. Let's say you're writing an application to replace a Mac application on desktop Linux. Let's say one of your dependencies is um, GNU Step, which is a re-implementation yep. of... Yeah, okay. There we go. You know where I'm going with this, right? How do I know, I guess a broader question, how does dependency management work as a developer packaging up a snap? So in general terms, most developers, most of the time, everything that you you require for your app to run is inside the snap. So if you're writing um, an Objective-C application that uses parts of GNU step, then you would in air quotes, this is the terminology we use inside the Snapcraft YAML, you would stage the GNU step packages that your application requires inside the Snap in order to satisfy those requirements. Okay, so effectively you're bundling the requirements with the app. Yep. And there's a very powerful property that comes out of doing that. So the other important property of a Snap is this. Let's take an application that I help maintain. I maintain the Snap of OBS Studio. The Snap of OBS Studio today, you could Snap install on Ubuntu 14.04, 16.04, 18.04, 20.04, and the upcoming 20.10 release. You could also install it on forward and backward versions of Debian and Fedora and Arch and all the rest of it. So by putting everything you need inside the snap, you create some sort of compatibility guarantees, which means you don't have these flag days anymore. This was one of the big problems that we were solving for ISVs and developers when we created snaps, which is you've developed a build process that is sort of hooked up to say Ubuntu 16.04. And when we release 1710 or 1804 library dependencies have changed in the underlying distribution and the deb that you've been putting on your website now no longer works because it's Mm. got unsatisfiable dependencies whereas you can make a snap on 1604 and continue to build and publish that snap based on 1604 but it will work all the way up to you know modern versions of ubuntu and other distributions and that's a very powerful feature for um for developers and publishers so that's an important property. Now, we, you know, people that aren't familiar with snaps will say, well, that's um, that's a huge pain because, you know, people like, you know, dependencies and all the rest of it. And what about common components? So to address that, you can create what we call um, content snaps. Um, some people create content snaps, but then refer to them as frameworks. And the popular ones, unsurprisingly, are for things like uh, GNOME and KDE. So there's a GNOME framework snap, which has, you know, 80% of what a, well, in fact, more than that, a large slice of what most GNOME applications are going to require most of the time. So you can just deliver your application, which then connects to the framework snap to use the assets that are inside it, which can be icons, graphics, fonts, and libraries, you know, and what have you. 
in order for your application to run without having to bundle like all of the GNOME runtime in your application. And the KDE community publish a framework for Plasma and you can do the same thing there. And you can even use their one for Qt applications and the GNOME one you can use for GTK applications that are not necessarily part of the, you know, the GNOME family of, you know, GNOME actual applications. You could use that for, say, an elementary application and then just ship Granite in your elementary snap alongside your application in order to give you, you know, the runtime that you you require. And then you mentioned things like uh, .NET, you know, they, they deliver their runtime as a snap. So their SDK is a snap and the runtime is a snap. And you can use the SDK to build a snap of your .NET app and then publish that app, which then consumes the content of their runtime in order to deliver the full experience to users of that application. That, that's super interesting. So you mentioned Qt. Mm-hmm. This dependency management, with, is that... So it sounds like it is not really static linking the libraries, right? No. I mean, that is not a requirement at all. As the developer publisher of a Snap, you could totally choose to deliver a statically linked application in a Snap. And when you think about Go apps, that's kind of what you're doing, right? Right, right, right. right. (laughs) And there's lots of Snaps in the store that are Go applications. Right, I'm thinking of folks like smaller ISVs who might want to avoid running afoul of the of the cute licensing terms in particular. I know this is like very Oh, I see. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, you could. I mean, you know, if you if you wanted to, if you didn't want to use a framework snap and you wanted to statically link your application, you can totally do that. Right, but if you use the framework snap, snap, you could probably avoid that and therefore yes. not have to pony up the 5 grand or whatever it is. Yes. So that's super interesting. So basically, it is a application distribution mechanism, and for lack of a better word, store, that you are free to use any technologies that you are comfortable in, that you feel you can do a good job in. And now, can you have your own private, uh, like, internal snaps? The answer to that is no, but yes, depending on who you are. So as, you know, people who are out there consuming snaps linux desktop enthusiasts there is one global snap store and canonical operate that snap store and there's some some good reasons why there's a single snap store and i'll get back to that later now if you are a large organization and this particularly applies to iot uh, vendors and public cloud uh, vendors you may want to have more control over how your app distribution works. So for that, we have a thing called the Enterprise Store Proxy. And that is an on-prem proxy to the Snap Store, which gives you much, much more control over how your application updates and distribution happen within your infrastructure. So all of your clients talk to your proxy and you can gate like how the updates are pushed out to those clients there. For example, if you're in automotive and you've got so many different, you've got a brand of car and um, you, you require a firmware update only to go out in the uk because it only affects cars with right hand drive for example then the enterprise store proxy is something that enables you to sort of 
give you that kind of fine grain control over how you manage those updates. Whereas the global store is anything that's in there when the publisher releases a new version, consumers of that snap automatically get the updates for that application. That's advantageous for the publishers because there's a very short tail, a very, very short tail of supported releases out in the wild. The snaps automatically refresh or check for updates every six hours. And, you know, looking at some of our internal metrics for uh, things that we look after, some of the GNOME applications, we see most of the users picking up those updates within 12 hours, you know, like within uh, 99, 99th percentile of users are on the latest version, which is excellent for pushing out security updates. Right. And as a, if you're a small developer, you don't have to worry about supporting old versions for, mm-hmm. you know, two to three years. Yeah. Which, but if you, if as a developer or a publisher, you have your application version one, and then you have version two come along and version two could be a huge departure. Maybe it's got um, API breaking changes or something like that in it. You know, you don't just want to flip all of your customers onto this new thing and potentially break you know, integrations and workflows. So we have this concept of tracks. So as a publisher, you can create a track for your 1.0, you know, life cycle, and you can publish your updates there for the 1.0, and then you can publish the 2.0 in a 2.0 track. And users of the 1.0 track won't automatically get jumped onto the rails of the 2.0 series until they choose to opt into that new track. So there, you know, we offer some flexibility there. And then we also have what's called channels. So, you know, when you push into, you know, the Debian repositories uh, or the, you know, the Ubuntu archive based on uh, dev packages, it's just um, by series. So there's, a, you know, there's versions of the package that sit there for Focal, the 2004 LTS, and there's versions of the package that sit there for 2010. But when that release goes out, that version of the package is fixed and there's only one version. But with channels, we have uh, stable, candidate, beta, and edge channels. So you can hook up your CI, CD to the edge channel. And for your users that like to be on the on the edge and consume all the new crack all the time, they can subscribe to edge and they get all the, all the updates, you know, as fast as they come. Your more conservative users can just track stable and only get the stable updates. And maybe you you want to put out a call to action to say, hey, to your user community, we're putting out a beta. It's in this. You can just do snap refresh, you know, name of application, dash, dash, beta. It will pull down the beta version and you're running the beta version of the snap. You can go through some testing, you know, on behalf of the project that you like give your feedback. And then if you want to go back to stable, snap refresh, name of app, dash dash stable. So you can flip between these tracks and channels and you can even have them installed side by side now. So you can have um, a combination of Firefox, for example, Mozilla publish the long-term stable release of Firefox and the current edition. And you can have the long-term supported version and the current stable version installed side by side with the snap. Okay, so that's really interesting. So if you have, right, if you have more conservative users, if you have a larger scale application with custom workflows, they might not want to be updated. So you can mm-hmm. maintain both. Excellent. So I know we're, we're running out of time here. So I have two devilishly fiendish questions to ask you. Okay. All right. I'll do the hard one first. What should I have asked you that I didn't know enough or just failed to ask you? Hmm. 
I mean, to get the sort of the potted version of what snaps and snapcraft are, I think you hit all the salient points there, right? Okay. I think I think maybe the contentious question that you didn't ask that we sometimes we often get asked. I'm, I mean, it's been ages since we've been to a conference and spoken to people in person, but this is the question that often come comes up. We often get the question, "Why are you doing snaps?" You know, flat pack exists and all the rest of it. So that's that that's one that we get leveled at us and you need to sort of understand that snaps and flat pack snaps obviously i i mentioned we try and target all application classes flat packs are very much uh, geared for desktop applications but both technologies were created at similar times to address the same kinds of issues that we're seeing in the way that applications need to be developed quickly and continue to run over multiple life cycles of distributions so and you know monoculture is bad so it's good to have some competition around competing products you know it would have been pretty bad if the only browser that was available all those years ago was internet explorer it was good that firefox was there to create some balance and it was good that chrome came along and firefox continued to be there to create some balance it's always good do you really get pushback on that ground i mean that seems kind of silly to me yeah, you definitely get people who are partisan and, you know, they will often look at competing things and they will pick a side and they will plant a stake in the ground and whichever side they they think is, is right, they will criticise why developers are, you know, working on something counter to that. And, you know, there's another very good question you should be asking yourself. If you, and it doesn't apply to snaps and flat pack, right? If you look at any technology or distribution or desktop environment or language and you say, well, that was stupid what they did, that was dumb, you're not exercising good enough critical thinking there. Yes. If, yes. if other people have gone a different path or chosen to do something differently, the first thing you should ask yourself is, hmm, I wonder what motivated them to do that. I should go and learn about why they chose to do those things. Because even if you don't agree with the reasons why, it's important to understand what the motivations were, because there's probably good reasons there. And maybe you come up with a better way to solve those problems or you can provide some useful conversation or maybe code contributions to improve that technology or a competing technology to better address those needs. Don't just dismiss things out of hand. Developers don't invest time doing things on a whim for no good reason. There's usually good thought and rationale that's gone into things. Absolutely. And that that could be anything, like you said, from a language to an IDE, to an editor, to hell, even an OS, right? That's why there's so many Linux distros. All right, so the easy question then, and mm-hmm. I'm very curious because I'm, I'm sure you've had your hands on many variations. What is your day-to-day setup like in terms of, you know, hardware OS? I'm going to guess Ubuntu. Is that a guess? <laughs> <laughs> Yes, yes, obviously Ubuntu. So, well, the computer I'm talking on you now is a computer I built a I year see. and a half ago. And it's um, an Intel i9-9900K with 64 gigs of RAM and an NVIDIA 2080 Ti, and a quad HDMI capture card. And I've got a four terabyte NVMe drive and a two terabyte NVMe drive in it. And then Oof. and then these things called Sedna PCI cards, which turn 
2.5-inch SATA cards into PCI solid-state storage device. And I have two two-terabyte drives attached to one of those to create a four-terabyte solid-state storage volume. So that's my workstation here. I'm a bit of a hardware nerd, so I, I totally loved you know putting that together and adding to it over the last 18 months. And I'm following the developments with the new NVIDIA 3000 series and the rumors around the AMD 6000 series GPUs very closely because I will certainly be upgrading my GPU uh, to one of those at some point. The minute I can get a AMD system that runs Linux natively, and I'm too lazy to install it on a Windows machine, I am all over that. Right. I mean, that's I'm super excited for that new chipset. Yeah. Um, are you talking about the Ryzen there or the uh, the new um, GPUs? Uh, the new Ryzen's, the new mobile Ryzen. I think yeah. there's a few Windows laptops that have them in the market now, but I'm not. It could be that I'm just not aware of a uh, OEM who has them on Linux yet. But yeah, I'm not going to get into that. But yeah, that no, I'm sure. I'm sure you're not. Yeah. <laughs> you and yes. I both know things. Yeah. It was really unfortunate. So I I was able to review one of those Ryzen laptops. It was last generation Ryzen last year in August last year, and it was absolutely fabulous. I took it away to uh, a work trip. I I was in Arizona for a week, and I took this laptop because I wa- wanted to really sort of you know test it. In fact, we reviewed it on the Ubuntu podcast and. The battery performance and the battery endurance and the performance of the combined CPU and uh, IGP was amazing. I went through, I think, two days without actually plugging this laptop into a oh, wall charger. Dream. Yeah. And by all accounts, the uh, mobile Ryzen 4000 CPUs are that plus plus. And I feel bad for AMD because they announced all of this in like March this year. Yeah. And then because world events, it really delayed them actually getting those CPUs out into laptops in the wild. So we're only now starting to see those, you know, turn up on the market. But um, if you look up the reviews of those laptops that are turning up now, they certainly seem to be delivering on that whole low power so excellent power endurance and really outstanding you know workstation performance so when it comes to my next laptop i will definitely be looking at amd and also maybe this new year coming up so new year 2021 i will build a new pc and without a doubt are we putting an amd cpu in it for many reasons um, but not least right now performance is outstanding at you know at any tier in their cpus the value proposition is also outstanding so yeah i should be looking forward to that and my my current laptop is a thinkpad p1 and i've got a xeon cpu in that thing and a quadro 2000 gpu and as you can imagine you unplug the power on that and you can watch the the power bar you know almost tick <laughs> down by the second <laughs> so, wow. yeah so yeah for the same reason i'm looking forward to having you know high-end amd parts available on mobile workstations in the not too distant future same here so wimpy thank you for coming on uh, i would recommend everybody check out your youtube channel wimpy wimpy's world and of course the very great ubuntu podcast it Thank is you a very podcast much. about Ubuntu. Who would guess? 
Not uh, just Ubuntu. It's Ubuntu-based, but we cover an awful lot of, you know, the Linux and open source ecosystem along the way. So, you know, don't turn up expecting, you know, an all-out Ubuntu fest. We we cover other topics, including retro gaming, which was a big part of the last couple yeah, of episodes. Yeah, you had a couple of Raspberry Pi episodes recently, if I'm not... Yeah, so. Raspberry Pi stuff and, yep. you know, looking different mobile platforms we've had the pine book and the pine phone reviews on there so yeah we cover a broad load of stuff i think we worked out that the ubuntu podcast is made up of 22 percent ubuntu it's, it's like when you buy you know lemon juice it's like 14 percent lemon <laughs> all right Wimpy, talk to you soon thanks very much thanks for coming <laughs>